Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the best films at the Toronto International Film Festival. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Welcome back, Chris. Glad to have you back in the States. Thanks. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're talking today about the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh why should people care about this? Because I think it's a different beast than like Sundance. Sundance is like these smaller films that we're trying to give exposure to. Like, you know, there's going to be some possible breakouts out of there. This is more what, like award contenders? Right. Um, you know, I don't want to get, I don't want to make it sound like that I only care about, you know, the <laughs> award season because I honestly am not big on award season in general, but the, the Toronto Film Festival, along with stuff like, you know, the Venice Film Festival and Telluride Film Festival, they all happen around the same time. This is like the official kickoff to award season. So a lot of the films that debut at Toronto are the, are the films we're going to be talking about for the next several months ad nauseum as, you know, award season heats up and people think, you know, this is what's going to get nominated for this and so on and so forth. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of times the films that debut at Toronto uh, are some of the best films of the year, you know, not exclusively, you know, there are films that come out earlier in the year that end up being some of the best movies of the year too. But Toronto has um, a really good amount of, uh, of stuff. And it's not just, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's an eclectic blend because they have big Hollywood stuff, but there's also really small, indie stuff there's you know there's foreign stuff so it, it it's a it's a really nice mix of films there's something for everyone <laughs> yeah so people should care about this because th these are films that they should put on their radar because we're going to be hearing about this for the next these films for the next uh three or four months um what uh how was your toronto experience this year it was good um this this felt like the busiest year for me or I don't know. Maybe it's because I am getting older and therefore my body is shutting down. But I was I was much more exhausted this year than I, I have been any other year. Um, this is my fourth year going. And my first two years, I was, you know, I was raring to go. I could <laughs> I could pretty much go all night this year, man. Uh, by the time, you know, my my screenings for the day got done, I, I was like limping back to the room and just like, uh I need to, I need rest. But uh, beyond that, it was it was a it was a great experience. I love going to TIFF. Um, uh, I believe I've said this before, but one of my favorite things about TIFF is that it's it's like a community experience of people who actually care about movies. Because most of the screenings I go to um, here in my my area, the Philadelphia area, uh, they're they're screenings that are both there are these mixed screenings. So you have press with contest winners. And these are my least favorite screenings of, of all time, because while the people from the press like me are there for the film, a lot of the contest winners, they don't really care what they're seeing. They just like the idea 
of seeing a free movie. So they're just, they're just basically there for, for shits and giggles. And as a result, it can make for some really frustrating movie going because you'll just have a crowd who just clearly doesn't give it, give a crap. And what I love about TIFF is everyone there, they're there to see the movies and sure you, you will get, um, this is true at any festival. You will get a few like straggler people who, uh, will like check their phones during the movies because I don't know they're jerks. But beyond that, yeah, especially in like the industry screenings, I, I I at TIFF many years had been sat next to like buyers or whatever that would just be on their phones the whole time, and it was like, right there's there's this one guy I see him every year at TIFF. I don't know his name, but he has this really thick Long Island <laughs> accent, and every time I'm at a press screening at TIFF, and I swear to God, this has happened at all four years. I see this guy. And before every screening, he'll be on the phone with someone talking about what he's seeing. And he's he's clearly like uh, not a distributor, but he clearly like runs a theater. So he's 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 looking for stuff to play at his theater and he'll be on the phone and he'll always be like, I just saw. And then he'll be like, he'll, he'll never remember the movie, the, the name of the movie. He'll just be like, I just saw the movie. I don't know what it's called with Robert Pattinson. And he just goes on and on. <laughs> And then the movie starts and he'll check his phone through the whole movie. And I, I see this guy every year, but beyond him, it's, it's a, I'd say like 90% of the crowd is yeah. good. It's, it's a good crowd. Did, um, did you have any notable experiences? I saw you got to interview Nicholas Cage. I did. Um, I don't really like to do interviews at TIFF because it, you know, it cuts into screening times, you know, every, every, Every screening, you know, it, it's it's like a fight to get to every movie, you know, on time because uh, not everything is at the same theater, and sometimes stuff ends like minutes before the next thing you got to see, so you got to book it to the theater. So I tend to avoid interviews for that reason. But I got offered uh, an interview with Nicolas Cage and Richard Stanley um, uh, for The Color Out of Space, which is a new movie from Spectrovision. They they uh, released Mandy and um, Richard Stanley, if, if the folks at home don't know, he's sort of this notorious filmmaker. He was uh, he started as this, this like cult filmmaker. He directed a film called um, uh, Hardwire and, and uh, Dust Devil. And he his his uh, quote unquote big Hollywood break was going to be the Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. And uh, there's a documentary about this called Lost Soul. And it's all about how the shoot was just an absolute disaster. And the studio fired him and replaced him with John Frankenheimer. And that sort of like derailed his career. He he stopped directing features. He made a few short films, but he hadn't directed a feature film since that film, which came out. And I think it was either 93 or 94. So color out of space is like his big, uh, comeback, so to speak his his return to feature filmmaking and Nicholas cage is in the movie. And, you know, when I got offered to interview them, I was like, well, that's, that's too good of a, uh, an interview to pass up. So I, I said, yes, to that I was very nervous. Most, I was more nervous about talking to, to Nick cage. Um, but I gotta say Nick cage, I don't want to use the word boring, but he's very normal in person. I, I know, I know we all think of Nicolas Cage as this, you know, raving lunatic because that's what he plays in his movies, but he was so like nonchalant and, you know, uh, maybe he was just tired. <laughs> it was early in the morning. I don't know, but it was like, it was literally like talking to someone's like dad. It was just like, Oh, this is just a normal man. <laughs> Um, Richard Stanley, however, was very interesting to talk to because he's one of those guys you talk to him and you're like, oh, my God, this guy is, is like smarter than anyone in the world. But he's he's smart in that really crazy way where he talks really fast <laughs> and you have you're like, what the hell is this guy saying? And you have to like slow down and kind of process what he's saying. So that was a really um, interesting interview. And the interview is actually up on slashfilm.com it's actually a, sh a, sh a shortened version because the the pr people asked me to run a short version now and then a longer version for when the film actually comes out it doesn't have a release date yet 
Okay, we'll 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 link that interview in the show notes. Uh, was there any other craziness? Like I saw you were at some like the big parties at TIFF, and that's always crazy because like you were at a party with like tons of directors and actors, like all like of the films all around you. Yeah, uh, that's another thing. I don't usually go to parties, but this year I was like, you know what? I'm going to make an effort to go to parties. So I went to two parties. One was for Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson movie. And the other was for Joker and Knives Out was um, the the most crowded party I've ever been to in my life or the point where I couldn't move at all. And uh, and yeah, and like that, you that, that ever... sounds exactly like an experience you'd like to have. Yeah, that's exactly. I love big crowds and being <laughs> being squished against people. Um, Knives Out, you know, I, the Knives Out party was a little better for me because there were a few people you know, a few fellow critics there that I knew. So I was able to talk with them. Uh, the Joker party, I felt like I was like a burglar who had broken into a mansion because everyone, <laughs> everyone there was, was, was famous at the Joker party. And, and it was and then like me and like, I, I actually, I, like, I went out and bought like a, a nice blazer to wear. And I, cause I, I, I wanted to look, presentable for this party and so i looked okay but i felt so out of place because everyone there was either like famous or very attractive um like i was at the bar ordering a drink and uh, john ham just comes walking right up next to me and orders a drink and i was like oh jesus this is very strange and then of course like joaquin phoenix is there and rooney mara is there uh <laughs> edward norton was there just all these people you know who are you know actors and celebrities were just mingling about and um you know some people they have no trouble uh <laughs> approaching people like this like i i know i'm not going to name names but i i know for a fact there are several of our 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 colleagues eric davis no, no <laughs> i mean he's he's better at that because he's you know he's he's well known but there are people Steve who Weintraub. Who will, yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> who will just go right off to these people and be like, how you doing? And I cannot do that. Um, uh, uh, this wasn't even at a party, but for example, at, at a screening of a movie, Ryan Johnson, because he was there for Knives Out, but this wasn't the Knives Out screening. Ryan Johnson came in and he sat down. And the minute he sat down, like four or five critics who were sitting with me got up and like ran over to him and you know, Ryan Johnson, he's a nice guy. He put up with them talking to him. But in my head, I was like, these people are being a little rude. Like, I know if I were like a famous filmmaker and I sat down to watch a movie and like four people came swarming over to me that I didn't actually know, I'd be like, please get away from me. But, but, but you know, Ryan, that, that's one of the things about Ryan Johnson is he makes everybody in the film community like feel like they're his friend. Yeah, he's a he's a really nice guy. You can tell he's a nice guy and he's really happy to talk to his fans. He's really appreciative. So, you know, I, I don't you know, and at the same time, I don't fault these critics for wanting to do that because, you know, you have to schmooze a bit to get ahead in this business. But I'm not at the point where I feel comfortable going up to someone and being like, hello, yeah. Ryan Johnson. I, 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 I could never do that. It's funny, the thing you mentioned of, like, you feeling like you broke into the party. It's an experience I felt so many times at Toronto and Sundance. And it, it's funny, like, with all those people in the room, you would expect that, like, you know, I'd come home and my friends would be like, oh, did you talk to – who did you talk to? And stuff. I was like, no, I was in the corner with the other three people I knew at the party, you know, talking to them. Right, exactly. Like, at that Joker party, I was, like, literally – in a corner eating cheese because there was a cheese plate. <laughs> so it's like all these famous, attractive people talking and then like me in a corner in the dark munching on cheese. So that was my my big party experience. Okay, we should probably talk about the films because we're almost 15 minutes in here. Yes. And uh, yeah, let's um, let's do this. Um, let's do your top 10. Let's do it from the bottom to the top. So we have some anticipation here. So what is your number 10 uh, film of the festival? Right. So um, just a, a quick uh, forward here. These are only the films I've seen uh, because I've been getting a lot of comments on Twitter being like, wait, wait, about... Chris, you didn't see everything. What... I know I, I really slipped up here. I, I did not manage to see all 8000 movies at TIFF, but some people are like, what about this? What about that? And I just 
didn't get to see everything I wanted to see. There was a lot of stuff I wanted to see I just couldn't catch. But it, wait, next- wait, before you start, is there any notable films that you want to quickly mention so that people you know have it in their minds that you have not seen? Um, I really wanted to see Parasite, but I didn't. Everyone says that's great. I just did not get around to seeing that. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is another movie I, I was dying to see, just couldn't see it. Uh, those are really the big two. Um, yeah. I did manage to see most of the stuff I wanted to see. And then there's stuff like Judy about Judy Garland, which I had no interest in seeing, but if you want to see it, go, go for it. <laughs> so there's that. How many, um, how many days were you actually at TIFF while it was running? Uh, I was there for five days. I was there for six days, but five days while it was running total. And you saw 17 films, which yeah. is pretty uh, is a lot of films to see in five days. It uh, is. Okay, let's uh, let's start at your number 10, and that's Dolomite. Yes, Dolomite is my name. Um, this is the movie about uh, Rudy Ray Moore. He was a, a comedian. He, he started off as a musician, then he started making comedy albums, and then he went out and made his own movie uh, based on the, this stage persona he had, which was Dolomite, who was this uh pimp like character and the script comes from um scott alexander and larry i'm gonna say his name wrong larry karazuski uh he wrote these are the two guys who wrote um ed wood and this movie it really plays like uh like a blaxploitation version of ed wood because it's all about you know these these sort of misfits who decide to say like to hell with the system we're going to do our own thing. And they, you know, they make their own movie the the way they want to make it, even though, you know, they sort of have no idea what they're doing. And it's a really funny sort of feel good movie. And uh, best of all, um, it has Eddie Murphy back front and center. And he's so good. Um, He's so good in this, that it makes you realize how much you've, you've missed Eddie Murphy. And, you know, Eddie Murphy, he's, he's been around still for the last few years and he's been popping up. Yeah, kind of. And he's every once in a while, he'll do something like Dream Girls, and people will be like, oh, it's Eddie Murphy's comeback, but he really hasn't done anything that's sort of like, you know, it's easy to forget that at one time, Eddie Murphy was like a superstar. He was like the biggest like comedian actor in the world, and that sort of just sort of dropped off, and a lot of his projects were kind of bad, and this movie, it's it's a really good movie, and he's great in it. It's probably like I like his best performance, and he's so he's so like consistently hilarious that it's just it just feels great to see him back in action again. Okay, what was your number nine film? Uh, number nine is Pain and Glory, which is the um, the latest film from uh, Pedro Almodovar, and uh, this this film it's it's very um, especially for Almodovar, it's very s- simple, but I really liked how beautiful it was and sort of it's it's autobiographical for for him uh antonio banderas plays this filmmaker um uh, late in his career and he's just basically reflecting on his career in the past and there's really not a lot to the movie it's literally just a series of of scenes where antonio banderas like reconnects with like one of his his actors that he had a falling out with and then he he does a lot of like heroin in the movie but it's done in this like playful way if you can if you can make <laughs> heroin use playful and it and it, it's just a very warm uh nice movie it just it makes you feel nice to watch believe it or not and uh, i had a really good time with that i feel like i'm just not a fan of that filmmaker um let's move on to your number eight uh david copperfield this is not about the magician no <laughs> uh unfortunately for my taste this is right. about uh the the dickens adaptation right uh so, right, yeah so what makes so, this different from previous versions of this so so the full title is the personal history of david copperfield and this film is from uh armando ianucci who he's the guy who created veep and he directed uh the death of stalin and in the loop and uh so if you're familiar with that you know you think of him as this guy who makes this really acidic acerbic very cutting sort of humor very mean-spirited humor and that's what i thought this was going to be and it's actually not it's it's surprisingly sweet um but it's also really really funny um there's a lot of like slapstick and sight gags and it 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 makes you know a, a lot of dickens adaptations you know 
and this isn't a knock on Dickens, who is a, like one of the best writers of all time, but a lot of people who adapt Dickens' work, they make it really stuffy and stodgy. And this film, it's the complete opposite, where it makes it really breezy and peppy and very funny and very charming. And this was the first movie I saw at TIFF this year. I saw it on the first night. And it was just a great way to kick off the festival because it, it just made me feel just happy to watch. And it's a very fun, charming film. Okay, your next film is something I'm very curious to hear you talk about. This is Joker um, from uh, Todd uh, Phillips. And uh, I, I know that when this was announced, you were very... I don't know if excited is the word for it, uh, but you were very interested. And then you had read the script and then you became a little less interested in this project. You're a little concerned. Right. But now that you've finally seen the film, what do you think? Right. Yeah. I went through sort of ebbs and flows of this. When they first announced it, I was like, oh, what a terrible idea. But then when they cast Joaquin Phoenix, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This might be interesting because I, I think Joaquin Phoenix might be like the best actor working right now, or at least one of them, if not the best. But then, as you said, you know, I read the script and the script is not good. And I was very concerned then. So I went into this with trepidation, I guess you could say. And it is a good movie. Um, it has problems. And the biggest problem is the script. I will say a lot of the script problems from the script I read have been changed a bit it, you know it, um there the uh, there was a report that they were literally like rewriting the script as the film was shooting which happens a lot on some films but it, it definitely did happen this time where you know they stay changed a lot of stuff um at the same time the script is very simplistic to the point where characters are like literally spelling out their motivations <laughs> which I, I just can't stand like there's a line where the joker is like this is what happens when society shits on the little guy and it's like stop it don't say stuff like that because it's so it's such hacky on the nose dialogue but everything else about this movie transcends the material um joaquin phoenix is is phenomenal as the joker uh todd phillips who is a director i have no real interest in at all does a fantastic job this is obviously his best directed film um uh the cinematography is, is gorgeous it, it, it's it's shot in this way where everything is sort of like uh, like grungy and and filthy it, it's meant to evoke like you know the the grungy new york of of like stuff like taxi driver and you know stuff like that scorsese movies and 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 stuff like that so it, it, it looks like that the score the musical score is oh great. i love this score it's so yeah it's very dark and ominous and and disturbing and the the movie itself it, it you know i i had heard obviously it's, it's sort of become a joke at this point of how dark the movie is but i don't think people are actually prepared for how dark this movie really is it's it's it actually like it gets into like horror movie territory near the end with some of the stuff that I won't give anything away, but some of the stuff that happens on screen is so horror movie esque that it, it caught me off guard. And at the same, so the the darkness it's both uh, a pro and a con for this movie because it's it's dark because it wants to be, but it's so nihilistic that the movie almost has no real point like there there yeah. this this movie really isn't saying anything other than the joker is a terrible person and you know i get that and maybe that really is all you need for a film like this and i forget who said it but i actually i saw a review somewhere that said like this is the type of movie the joker if he were a real person would like and that really is what this is it's not really uh, uh, about anything and there's even a, a scene in the film where the joker literally says like oh i don't believe in anything you know i don't have any beliefs i'm not political i have no actual beliefs and that really is sort of like he's summing up this movie it has it doesn't it's just a nihilistic film where it doesn't really have anything on its mind other than being nasty and I can definitely see that not working for a lot of people for, you know, just people being like, it's too dark for me. It's too miserable of a movie. 
I don't know what the point is. See, but, see, see, on the other side of the coin, I see you, you. You say this movie. The one only thing that this movie does relay is how terrible of a person Joker is. I think a lot of. I, I think there's going to be a big subsection that don't doesn't take that away from this movie, and the reason that this is going to appeal to them because they're going to empathize with him too much, and it's almost like a dangerous line here because of where this movie goes. And I, I don't want to spoil anything. I mean, obviously it's about the Joker's rise to right. whatever. So, I mean, that doesn't spoil anything, but like in kind of a way, like fight club, you know, a lot of people have taken like Tyler Durden on as like an icon and where he shouldn't be, but at least in that movie, there is a moral side to it. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I do think there are, there is going to be a subset of the audience out there that really misses the point of this movie or you know, <laughs> lack thereof. Um, at the same time, I don't know if you can blame the movie for that. And I, I will say to the movie's credit, I think it does do a good job of presenting the Joker as a, as a really horrible person. Like, yes, they, 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 they make a point of being like, Oh, he has mental illness. And, you know, on some level you can be empathetic towards him, but, at least from my viewing, I was never sympathetic. I was never like, I feel oh, yeah. bad for this guy. I, it's more like, I understand where this guy is coming from, but he's still a really shitty person. And unfortunately, there are there will be people who miss that. And I wish that weren't the case, but that's just, you know, <laughs> this is the world we live in now. Yeah, there's some nice twists and turns here. We're going to have a spoiler episode to discuss this once this film hits theaters but uh you really enjoyed this but this made about like the middle of the pack for your tiff experience right yeah, yeah. um okay uh up next uh marriage story yes this is the latest from noah bombach um he directed francis ha and the squid and the whale several other movies uh it stars adam driver and scarlett johansson as a couple going through a divorce and this movie, it's really an actor's showcase. Like the plot is, the story is is secondary. This is really an excuse to show how good uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson are a, as performers. And Scarlett Johansson is very good in this, but this this movie really belongs to Adam Driver, who is another one of those actors up there with Joaquin Phoenix in my mind, who's who's so good at, at what he does, and he's. He's very good in this, and it's a. This is a brutal movie, man. Like uh, anyone who's ever, not just been married, just been in a relationship, which is pretty much everyone, will probably feel uncomfortable at, while watching this movie because it it just shows how painful a breakup can be. Like just how. And not just how painful, but how nasty a breakup can be too. Where you know two people who were once crazy about each other are suddenly at each other's throats and at this you know i know that sounds like a really unpleasant movie and at times <laughs> this movie does get unpleasant but there is like a, a sense of humor to it like uh, bombach makes sure to add you know humor so it's not like this dour miserable experience so i was i was really impressed with that this for just like the way it unfolds and and the performances you know, I don't lo always love Noah Baumbach's films, but they're always a must-see for me. So I'm, I'm excited to check this out. Uh, number five on your list is Waves. Yes, Waves is the latest from um, Trey Edward Schultz. He directed a movie called Cretia. He also directed another movie called um, uh, It Comes at Night, which a lot of people did not like, but I did. Uh, he's a filmmaker who specializes in making movies about very <laughs> – anxious situations where you're just waiting for something to go wrong and this movie is sort of like his magnum opus of that uh it's actually like two movies in one so it, it's it's really it's all about this disintegration of of this one family and the first half of the movie is about uh the son in the family the eldest son and about how he's He's this rest, this high school wrestling star. He has a girlfriend. He's a really popular guy, but he's under a lot of pressure. You know, he's under pressure from his dad. He's under pressure to get a scholarship from wrestling, even though he he actually has this this shoulder injury that he doesn't want to tell anyone about because he doesn't want to you know lose that chance. And it, it's all about how 
you know, the pressures of his life slowly push him over the edge. And then the second half of the movie is about his sister and how she deals with, um, uh, I can't say anything cause it'll give, it'll be a spoiler, but how she deals with a certain situation. And, uh, while the first half of the film is, is that very anxious stuff that, that, that Schultz does really well. The second half is a lot, um, calmer and a lot kinder and it, it's a lot, uh, sweeter. It's about, you know, a, like if there's one message in this film, it's that we people should just try to just be a little nicer to each other. And that message is is done in a very subtle way. It, you know, it, it, they don't just come right out and be like, be nicer to each other. It's just done in this way. You, you mean at the end of the movie, Joker doesn't say everybody needs to be nicer to each other? <laughs> Right. Yes. There's not a scene where the Joker says that. And yeah, uh, but you know, that, that underlying message where, you know, the, the, really the moral of this movie is like life is really hard and really difficult. And we, if everyone would just be just a tiny bit more empathetic, we could all get through this a little bit easier. And that's a really good message to relate to because it's true. Life can be a, a, a nightmare. So uh, to have a movie do that, say that message in a, in a, in a, in a subtle way is very um, cathartic to watch. Well, that's, well, that's pretty evergreen. I think that's a message we could take for uh 2020. So yes. Um, number four on your list, lighthouse. Yes, The Lighthouse. This is Robert Eggers' film, the, his follow-up to The Witch. Uh, it stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And man, oh man, this is a weird movie. Uh, I, I love weird stuff. Um, and I kind of hate when people say, like, what a weird movie. But there's really no other way to describe this movie other than weird. And I, I loved it. I, I, but at the same time, I know this is going to be one of those movies that when it comes out, it's going to get like an F cinema score. Like normal audiences are going to walk out of this and be like, what the fuck did I just watch? Cause it's so unrelentingly strange and nothing is ever really explained. And I know that's going to bug a lot of people, but if you're on the same wavelength as this movie, you're going to dig it. Um, you know, it's about these two lighthouse keepers, uh, who, you know, are just on this remote island. It's like the late 1800s. They're on this remote island and things start going very weird. And I won't say anything more, but uh, it, it, it's it's in black and white. It's shot in this really boxy ratio that makes it look like it's this like a lost movie that was actually shot in the 1800s. What, what so do you mean had, by boxy ratio? So like Instagram where it's like, a, I mean, I guess old Right. It's shot in what's it's officially called four three, which is also called Academy Ratio, which is the the way that old Hollywood films were shot before widescreen became, you know, a thing. So it's it's the perfect movie to watch on your phone if you want to do that. <laughs> but but please don't. Um but yeah, so I feel like all these esoteric details, they're really gonna turn audiences off. Not all audiences, but casual moviegoers who are just like oh robert pattinson let's go see that but everyone else who loves dark weird stuff they're gonna get a kick out of this okay uh that was lighthouse let's move on to your number three movie hidden life yes this is the latest from terrence malick and it's the best thing he's done in a long time uh i love er early terrence malick um you know uh, and even later period stuff i love the thin red line um the New World is one of my favorite movies of all time. But after Tree of Life, uh, which in my mind is like the last great movie he made for you know, up until now, after Tree of Life, he started to get very, very abstract. And it was sort of a, a direction he was going in over time. Like his very first movie, Badlands, has a plot. <laughs> but as each film goes on, you know, Days of Heaven and then The Thin Red Line and so on, you can see him slowly moving away from traditional narrative cinema towards more abstract, ethereal, uh, tone poem yeah. cinema. If I you mean, will. I would even say Tree of Life is very abstract. I mean, there's a right. whole part where we get to see the creation of the world or something. Right. Tree of Life <laughs> is like a blending of where he will eventually ended up and sort of 
because there is a narrative there about you know a, a kid yeah. growing up with his abusive father but after that everything he made after that has has been very very out there in terms of of story there's he made you know the movies like knight of cups and to the wonder and uh song to song these are movies that they look gorgeous they always look great they have a really really great cast but there's there's i don't want to say there's nothing going on because there is stuff happening but it's so abstract and so unconcerned with with telling a story that it can really start to weigh you down Um, so how does hidden life compare to those hidden life um it's it's a return to form if you will it's a return to an actual story um it still has (laughs) you know those malachisms it still has a lot of uh beautiful shots of characters standing around in nature and it still has you know the the voiceover stuff but there's a, a really clear story and not only that but it's a, it's a surprisingly timely story like i don't really think of of malik as making quote unquote timely things even when he makes movies set in in the present day you know they're they're still sort of about these abstract themes um this this movie it's based on a true story it's set during world war ii and it's about this austrian farmer who just flat out refuses to to pledge loyalty to hitler um you know it's during world war ii it's doing when when hitler is in power and um and there it's basically just about he's like the only person who doesn't uh, he's the only person in his his group of people that he knows that doesn't think Hitler is good for you know the country. He th- he thinks Hitler is is evil, and it's all about how all his friends and neighbors like turn on him because they're like, why aren't you you know why won't you support the fatherland? And um, it you know it's impossible to watch a movie like this and not think of our current times and i'm not going to get into a whole thing here where i'm like trump is hitler i'm not you know i'm not saying that but (laughs) it's clear that malik is reflecting on that sort of thing where people can get you know uh brainwashed in a way by political leaders because there's like a scene where the main character he's he's sitting with a bunch of friends and one of the friends just starts talking about how hitler is going to, you know, bring respect back to Germany. And, he, you know, and it, it might as well be someone giving, you know, a, a, a make America great again speech. And it's this movie is literally about how even if no one else will, will back you, it's still always the right thing to do is to stand up to what you think is wrong. And this, uh, the, this guy, this character, he has several opportunities to just, you know, say you know screw it yes i support hitler even if he doesn't mean it like you know he gets arrested he goes to jail and his lawyer tells him like look if you just sign a piece of paper saying you support hitler they'll let you go you don't have to actually mean it just sign this paper and he he just refuses to do it because he's like you know i can't support this guy i can't support this regime and it's it's a really powerful film and it 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 really blew me away Seems like there's a lot of films with timely messages at TIFF this year. Yeah. Uh, your next two, the top two, don't seem to be one of them. But uh, let, let's go with your number two, which is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Yes. Uh, actually, there is a political oh. thing in, in Knives Out. It's 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 done in a, a, a comedic way, but there's, there's a scene where everyone actually is talking about Trump and about uh, you know his his presidency, but it's done in in this sort of like um, it, it's not like a main thing in the yeah. movie. They don't, they, but it's just a, a, a it's more a of a music. cheeky. Yeah, but this movie, oh man, this was uh, so much fun. This is one of the most entertaining movies I've seen in a very long time. Uh, Ryan Johnson, um, he's assembled this this amazing cast you know daniel craig chris evans uh, jamie lee curtis uh, anna de armis all these people they're they're so good and it, it's a it's an old-fashioned whodunit it's it's a it's a locked room mystery which is uh, the type of mystery that agatha christie made really popular where you have a whole bunch of people someone gets murdered everyone's a suspect and then there's a a, a detective a, who's an outsider trying to solve the mystery and 
uh, Daniel Craig is that detective and everyone else is the suspect. And it's so much fun. It's, um, it, you know, whereas Agatha Christie, uh, you know, does that stuff more seriously. Ryan Johnson is taking it and making it hilarious. Um, I guess like the closest thing I could compare it to would be like clue, the movie clue, but this is, this is so much better than clue. And it's, it's clever as hell. It's funny as hell. There's, there's a different twist, like every scene that you will not see coming. And there were even like several times where I was like, ah, I figured out where this is going. And it, it goes like the completely opposite <laughs> direction. And the cast is so good. Everyone here does a great job. Chris Evans is, is hilarious. Daniel Craig is great. Um, I really hope after he's done with Bond, he starts doing more comedy because between this and uh, Logan Lucky, which is a movie he made uh, recently, he has really great comedic chops, which a lot of filmmakers are not exploiting just because he's been playing, you know, the dour James Bond for so long. But I really hope he does more comedy after this. Okay, Chris, what is the best film you saw at the Toronto International Film Festival? The very best film, in my humble opinion, is Jojo Rabbit. And apparently this is a controversial opinion because um what whenever i write a review for a movie i don't i go out of my way to not read other people's reviews first because i just don't want anyone's anyone else's ideas to bleed into mine so uh this film i i saw it i immediately rushed back to my my room and and banged out the review and then the next day i started seeing other people's reviews that were oddly either mixed or negative. And I actually think it's rotten on Rotten Tomatoes right now, but I, I don't know what <laughs> these people wanted from this movie, but I, I love this movie from beginning to end. Um, this is uh Taika Waititi's latest film. You know, he directed Thor Ragnarok and hunt for the wilder people and, you know, a bunch of other movies. And it's set during world war two. And it's about this, this young boy who, uh, young boy living in Germany who idolizes Hitler so much so that he has an Amer imaginary friend who is Hitler. And it's played by Takawatiti who, who plays the character hilariously. Like, obviously he's not playing it like the real Hitler. He's playing it basically like his vampire character from what we do in the shadows. So imagine that character, but as Hitler and you'll, you'll, you'll get how, how, how funny that could potentially be. And, um, the first half of the movie is this like laugh riot where it's just all about, you know, this guy, this, this kid idolizing Hitler, this kid who wants to grow up and be a Nazi. And, um, and then it, it actually starts getting serious and it actually goes to really dark places, darker than I was, I was even anticipating. Um, but it also has this really kind heart to it. Um, you know, even though this boy idolizes Hitler, um, his mother played by Scarlett Johansson, she, you know, she does not, she, you know, she's a German citizen. Obviously she loves Germany, but she, she sees through the Nazis and, and their, you know, their horrible regime. And she's, you know, all she wants is for her son to grow out of this Hitler phase. And she's actually hiding um, a Jewish girl in the attic. And the Jewish girl is played by uh, Thomas and McKenzie, who, was in uh, a film last year called Leave No Trace, and she was phenomenal in that, and she's really good in this too. And the the you know, the, the boy discovers her, and at first he's you know obviously he hates her guts because she's Jewish and he wants to be a Nazi, but over time he slowly starts to really like her, and he slowly starts to realize how flawed the you know the the Nazi ideology is, and it's it's such a good movie and uh, this movie really should not work that's that's <laughs> the, that's the thing that really impressed me with this movie like any movie that's about a young nazi who has an imaginary friend who is hitler just seeing that on on paper it's like oh this is a terrible idea it, no it, one and it's done in like a quirky almost wes anderson like style right, right exactly like the, you know a comedy about that is like, oh, this is the worst idea anyone has ever had. But it works so well. And the tones, the balance of tones is handled so incredibly. Because like I said, yes, it is funny. And there's some hilarious stuff. But it also goes to some incredibly dark, upsetting 
um, scenes. Uh, I won't give anything away, but there's one scene in particular where the entire audience just like gasped and they, and it was like the loudest crowd gasp I have ever heard in my life. And, and at the same time, after that scene happens, it does get back into humor again and the humor works. And I, I think that speaks a lot to how great a filmmaker he is that he can throw in shocking, disturbing stuff and then immediately go back to the humor and have it work and not seem crass or vulgar or out of place. And um, that said, I do think some people will be turned off by this film just because of the subject matter alone. You know, even though it worked for me, I could see the idea of a, a comedy about Nazis not working. But um, for me, this, this, this really, really impressed me. It really blew me away. This is one of those movies where the minute it was over, I was like, oh, I gotta, I have to see this again. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things is when, when you go to a film festival, I always love like looking at the, all the stories in, in a bunch and seeing what similar themes have come up. Like, it's not like these people talk to each other and are making, you know, the, it, it's not uh, intended that they're making similar things, but it, it's always like I feel like a few years ago at Sundance, like almost every other film was about uh, someone in their mid 30s or early 40s going home because they're their one of their family members was sick and then they had to like deal with their old issues from their childhood place or something like that. You know, it's like right. a, a mid coming of age kind of thing uh here like, I, I don't see a, a similar theme but i do see a lot of the same stuff there's like you know you have films that have like timely messages you have things you, you have a couple films here about the breakups of marriages and families you have a couple films with scarlett johansson you have a yes. couple films with hitler uh <laughs> so there's there are some some uh, you know themes here to i mean some I, I mean, it's just a coincidence, but uh, did you see anything overall this year at the Toronto Film Festival that you you found that there was like an overall theme? I mean, I don't know if this is just because these are the types of films I'm drawn to, but <laughs> with the exception of, you know, comedies like Knives Out and uh, David Copperfield, you know, the biggest theme I saw was just things falling apart um just movies about people and situations and marriages just disintegrating and again that could just because i'm a miserable bastard and that's the type of stuff i go see but it could also just be reflective of this this very weird time we find ourselves in where every day seems like something terrible is happening in the news some some new uh problem is presenting itself and where we have no idea how to fix it. And that sort of was sort of the, what I was picking up from, from the stuff. And at the same time, there was also this underlying message of like a, a cry for empathy, like, like waves I was talking about where yes, things are bad. Yes. We don't know if they'll ever be good again, but you should still try to have some semblance of hope. And even like Jojo rabbit has that message where, Yes, this is, you know, World War II. Yes, the Nazis are terrible. Yes, people are dying, but you still have to just keep going. And maybe things will work out. Maybe they won't, but you're not going to know how they're going to turn out unless you just keep doing the right thing. And it's not easy. It's not easy to do the right thing. <laughs> like, I, like, you know, A Hidden Life. Like, as I was watching that movie... And there's, you know, that scene where they're like, sign this paper and we'll let you out of jail. In my head, I was like, you know, if that were me, I would sign that goddamn paper so fast. <laughs> I'd be like, yes, let me out of jail. I don't care. But it's it's hard. It's hard to do the right thing when when things are so terrible. And I, I think if there was a theme of these movies, it's that. Just tr yeah. try, try really hard to do the right thing, even if it, it seems impossible. Okay, I know we've already gone way over our time limit, but um, there was a bunch of films that you saw that we that weren't in your top ten. Is there any anything notable that you want to uh, briefly talk about? Um, really, the, the out of everything else, the one thing I'll, I'll point out is uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which is the the Mister Rogers movie with Tom Hanks. Um, uh, this movie, the main plot, which is about um, this this grumpy, miserable journalist learning to be nice again. It's, it's dumb. I don't care about that, but 
Tom Hanks is so friggin' good as Mr. Rogers. He nails not just the mannerisms, he really gets the Mr. Rogers voice down. I, and I don't mean he's doing an impression of Mr. Rogers' voice because Mr. Rogers had a very distinct sort of like almost like an, a weird Southern accent, even though he was from Pittsburgh, but he had that sort of twangy accent. And while Tom Hanks doesn't do that, he gets like the very soft spoken, like ASMR type of speaking (laughs) that, that Mr. Rogers had down and every scene with Tom Hanks, I was just transfixed and just like, Oh my God. And (laughs) there's this scene where, uh, and this, this line, it shouldn't work because it's so blunt and it's so on the nose, but there's a scene where... Where Joker the, says that... <laughs> but, no, there's this scene where the reporter guy is like, oh, I know why you, you know, you're drawn to people like me because you're drawn to broken people. And Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks says like, oh, I don't, I don't think you're broken. And he says it in this really soft, kind way. And there's like this beat of silence. And like, I just felt like my my heart in my chest start to like crumble a little. I was like, oh, Mr. Rogers, I wish you, you were here to say that to me. (laughs) So, um, you know, the movie as itself is, is, is so, so, but Tom Hanks's performance is so great that it's worth saying. And I honestly think the Oscar season is going to be the Joker versus Mr. Rogers. And, uh, I don't know how I feel about that because those are those are polar opposite. I'm talking the best actor race here. So the, it, the best actor is either going to be Mr. Rogers or the Joker. And boy, what a strange world we live in where that's what it's come to. This is a meme worthy short film in the making. Someone someone online should make this Mr. Yes. Rogers versus uh, the Joker. Um <laughs> Uh, Chris, I want to thank you because you've distilled down, you know, six days worth of film going into the last 40 minutes and uh, are probably helping a lot of people out there, you know, put some stuff on the radar that they probably didn't otherwise have. Uh, so so thank you for your work. And um, people can read your full reviews to all these films. I will link them in the show notes uh you can find this podcast published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slash and please rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow <laughs>